Welcome to a brand new season of Gaming for Good, brought to you by Salesforce.org, where we explore the latest innovations in digital fundraising, from gaming to live streaming and beyond. This is a season of playbooks, giving you the tools and tips you'll need to navigate this brave new world. I'm Will Bond, and with my co-host Shay Thompson, we'll be your guides, introducing you to experts inside charities, online platforms, and the worlds of gaming and streaming. Our first episode is a downloadable content playbook. Within the context of the gaming world, downloadable content, or DLC for short, is the stuff that gamers download to add to a game. If you've played any game at all, whether on your smartphone or on a gaming device, you'll have noticed you're constantly being offered little extras, upgrades for your gear, new looks, or levels for your game. Some of it's free, and some you have to pay for. If you listened to the first season of Gaming for Good, if you didn't, I strongly suggest you do, you might remember an interview with Warchild, explaining how they'd harness the power of DLCs to fundraise for that charity. In this episode, we'll give you a playbook for the different ways your charity, NGO or not-for-profit, can use DLCs for good. We highlight two distinct avenues, fundraising and marketing and communications. But before we get into the nitty-gritty, it's worth exploring how DLCs entered the charity space in the first place. Christian Ruffer works for the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC. They work on humanitarian protection and assistance for victims of war and other violence. They're one of the charities pioneering the use of DLCs, and Christian told us something surprising. At his charity, DLCs were first used as a way of educating and raising awareness, and only secondarily as a way of raising money. Now, there are two things you need to know before meeting Christian. First, before he joined the ICRC, he used to be an officer in the Swiss Army. And second, he's a huge video gamer. Because I'm a gamer since I'm probably, I don't know, 12 years old. Well, when I joined the Red Cross, I never stopped playing games. I remember I was probably the only person uh, moving around with a big desktop and, uh, and a flat screen in South Sudan or, or Afghanistan. When Christian left the military, he put his experience of conflict zones to work for the ICRC, ending up as an armed forces delegate, working alongside armed forces to make sure international humanitarian law is being followed. Basically, the law that governs how civilians and military prisoners of war should be treated. It's only really started in 2010, when I was based in the Horn of Africa. I was covering, I don't know, 12 countries there as an armed forces delegate, so persons that work with the armed forces to explain uh, the law of armed conflict. And I, I was a bit, like many of my colleagues, a bit frustrated, not having enough material, audiovisual material, to showcase certain point, to try to explain them, make them more simple to digest. And I was playing Arma 2 at the time, and I, one day I said, I was in Uganda, why not? Let's try to bring a little scenario with an attack on a village. Armour 2 is a war game, and it prides itself on being very realistic. Christian realised that he could use some of the gameplay to illustrate points he was trying to make about the treatment of civilians in a conflict. I really started like that, and I realised that my counterparts, all army officers, up to colonel, were very interested. So it was, of course, a bit clunky. It was on my bad computers at the time. But I really realised that, wow, there's something to, to dig here. There's really an interest from the armed forces for, for this kind of material. 
Christian was really onto something, and his boss agreed. They wrote a letter to the developer of the video game Armour 2, a studio called Bohemia Interactive. It was the start of an ongoing relationship. And this is where it started in, in 2012, really formally, and it never stopped. So for years and years, I've been creating just kind of small videos explaining the rules and how the rules apply to conflicts using Arma 2 and then Arma 3. I think it was a kind of natural or like evolving relationship we had with one of the consultants at the International Committee of the Red Cross, Christian Rufer. That's Joris Jan Vanatland. He's a game developer at Bohemia Interactive, the game studio Christian had written to. And he, from his side, already had a passion for gaming. And I think he identified our Arma series of games as one of the ones that depict warfare in a slightly more authentic way. And he liked that. And he reached out to one of my colleagues, Ivan Buchta, and they started talking about just giving feedback on what we are doing, what we might be doing better in future games. That's how it kind of started. And then much later, we had, for example, a workshop in one of our studios where Christian and one of the ICRC lawyers gave us an introduction about international humanitarian law, which was really interesting and it gave us inspiration and insights. And then later again, we uh, kind of pitched the idea for a special downloadable content to our existing game, which really focused on humanitarian law in armed conflict. And so the idea was born for a piece of downloadable content about humanitarian law in armed conflict. Joris brought this idea to Christian. And then one day they came with the idea, what about a DLC? It's going to get a little noisy here. We've got to clear out some minds. Take your time. And I was like, wow, but it, it, it's huge. They say, yeah, 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 we know. We do video games. And I was really amazed at the amount of work they really invested into it. So I was serving as a kind of a advisor, you know, so trying to, to look at the scenarios uh, we're talking and to brief the, the team about. So I also went twice to, to Prague to discuss with them. It was very interesting. So what kind of downloadable content came out of this collaboration? So very classical DLC would just add new vehicles or weaponry or missions or scenarios they can play through. The Laws of War DLC, which is the one where we collaborated with the ICRC, is a bit more unique in that we really more focused on the theme than the content. The main part of it is a story-driven experience where you play as a EOD expert, so like someone who defuses mines, for example, in a conflict area, and you had to clear a civilian town that had been bombed by cluster munitions. But you would get to experience that story from all the perspectives, all the different factions, let's say the enemy, but also the charitable organization helping, the civilians, other side of the military. Loose rubble everywhere. You up at the armory, Mac? We need to make a note to sort that shit out. Probably a whole bunch of ordnance lying around. I'll come back later. We didn't okay, ourselves make any judgments of who was right or wrong. We let the players decide like who they felt was to blame for the situation. And that was our way of framing this topic. And beyond that, we did also add technologies in the game. For example, 
Our game is set in 2035, so it's uh, contemporary but the future. And so we were looking at real-world technologies that help organizations like the RDCRC with minefields. One of the things we added is a demining drone. So imagine a little drone flying over a minefield. It's able to detect mines and then drop a kind of controlled explosive device that will set it off. And so it was very interesting also for us to interpret where this work of the ICRC might go in the future. The relationship between the ICRC and Bohemia Interactive goes on. The game developer has launched another DLC called The Art of War. It's about what happens to art and heritage during conflict. The first DLC was Love War, and recently there was uh, The Art of War. It was, of course, smaller in scale, but it's important because it's a topic nobody care about. What about you know, museum and, and cultural properties in time of conflict? Everybody is crying when those things are destroying conflicts, but if you want to protect them during conflict, you have to explain to people that they are protected and for a reason. Yeah, I was totally amazed when I could see the amount of work they invested into it, not expecting any return on investment. And this is also something that is pretty rare. It's also pretty rare that when you contact video game industry, normally it's massive companies. You have all this layer of PR that you have to deal with. In this case, we had contact with the CEO straight away and the directive creators. So that was also why it was very easy, very smooth. And I think there was a common goal saying video games should stay fun, but maybe we can also learn something out of it even if it's about conflict. Creating these pieces of downloadable content was clearly a huge investment in time, chiefly on the part of the game developer, but also in terms of Christian's time consulting on the content. So, did the ICRC expect to raise funds from the DLC? We never talked money. I know it might sound weird, but they are always surprised when we start talking about what we could possibly doing in the future together and uh, say, I don't care about your money. <laughs> That's not the point. We're interested by the power of your game in terms of passing messages and that can enrich your game maybe or the message around it. At the end, it's a win-win, it's but the money is not the point. That said, DLCs can be used to raise money for charity, and in fact, the DLC that Bohemia Interactive built for the ICRC did raise a substantial amount. In this specific case, we in the end donated, I think, around 170,000 US dollars. How we defined it when we announced the project to the world was uh, it was going to be half of the net revenue during a fundraising period, in that case, a whole year. The donations that we are able to do are nice extra cherry on top, and I hope it really does help them. It's also about just raising awareness of some of these real-world topics. And I think we have a pretty uh, good position to be able to do so, because a lot of our existing players, they are active-duty military personnel. Others are veterans. They might just be people who are... They don't have any idea about this kind of stuff. So I think we have a unique position to tell these stories. And even if we just raise this topic with a handful of players more than would otherwise know about it, I think that's already a win. Whether you want to raise funds or whether you're more interested in raising awareness, how many people might a DLC reach? Arma 3 is still, it is very successful. There's, I think, between five and six million people who already have bought it. 
but it's still considered a niche game. There are games out there these days that have tens of millions of players. So if you can manage to make, I don't know, a charity standalone game even, that might even be free, you have an audience that is potentially just almost unlimited. I find it personally really cool to see also how many more game players there are in the world these days. It's no longer a stereotypical me, basically, in the basement, but it's everyone. Children, older people, women, men, everyone. So that's really cool. Another person who knows a lot about using downloadable content to engage gamers in a charity's mission is James Shaw. In fact, he seems to be the person in gaming for digital fundraising that everyone wants to know. He used to be vice president of digital business at Sega. He now runs his own game publishing company, but spends a lot of his time advising charities on how best to operate in the gaming space. My name is James Shall. I'm director of publishing at Secret Mode, which is a publishing division within Sumo Group. I also have a number of roles with various charities where I'm an ambassador at uh, WDC, Wells and Dolphins Conservation, and also Special Effect. So if charities do want to dip their toe into DLCs, how can they go about forging a relationship with a game developer? It's to have that creativity of how can I get my message into a game? And once you've got that spark of idea, it's to approach the developer and say, hey, what do we need to do? Putting stuff in a game, though, isn't cheap. So you're probably looking at about 30 to 50,000 pounds worth of investment to change something within the game. You could do it far cheaper if it is just cosmetics, but it does take time to build things. Loads of organisations get inundated with charity requests, right? Loads. It's having something that's a point of difference. Rather than being a blanket, hello, Mr. Games developer, Mrs. Games publisher, whatever, can you help us as a charity, right? This kind of not adding anything new. Whereas, hey, I really like your game. This is my charity, and we'd love to do this thing. Have you thought about this? And that's much more engaging, and it's creating a conversation for you to have with the developer. Going in passionately is really important. The games developers themselves, the people making the games, are so passionate about their dreams and desires about bringing something to the players. They're the ones who really love to hear people have ideas about their content. Some developers and some publishers are completely shielded, right? And they say, no, we've got our charity, that's it, and that's policy. And that's something for the charities to understand and respect as well, which they do. You know, the charities are very pleasant organisations to operate with. In these kinds of relationships, who foots the bill for the development of the content? In every case that I did at Sega, it was Sega that paid for it. And it's something that Sega didn't promote too much, but it's a really good thing that Sega was spending money for the charity and then basically handing the keys over for these items to the charity. And somebody had to pay for it. It wasn't like magic money, just saying, oh, yeah, this is going to cost us X. No, they have to physically create a plan and, and get that paid for with a developer. And yes, it's for this item, which we're going to give to the charity, but also we may generate new players, new content, new PR, so that there are benefits to it. James Yoris and Christian's testimony is powerful and a fascinating insight into how charities might approach DLCs for good, 
whether for direct fundraising or for education and raising awareness. But if you're a charity and want to get into this space, what are the few most important things you need to know? I asked all our guests what they wish they'd known starting out in this area, and one of the things everyone seemed to agree on is that it all boils down to building relationships. Start talking about the game. Speak the same language. Pay interest to, to what they do. You have to build this trust. You have to build this relationship. Think about a longer time frame, two, three, four years. And then, yeah, things will come, I think, naturally out of this relationship, this deep relationship that, again, is built upon trust and not money. And then during the process, being pragmatic, so realizing the challenges on both sides and just trying to navigate them. I would also say what worked really well for us is that you do have an actual game development studio working with the charitable organization, which might work better than the charity themselves just trying to outsource a game development project because you really get the best of both worlds. It could work the other way, like by commission, but I think this was one of our strengths that we just had the passion on both sides and we wanted to make it. But what if you aren't able to establish a relationship with a game developer? Is there another way? It turns out there is. You could tap into the power of up-and-coming developers and amateur coding enthusiasts. I think there's two different no, avenues. The first is do it yourself. Basically, invest in people. There's a huge community. Look at Arma 3 modding community. It's totally crazy. The amount of work that people invest into uh, game modes or vehicles, it's, it's millions of man hours into it. And you can create stuff for not that much money or investments. The video game fans are very generous with the money. When you do fundraising, they give money. But if given the opportunity to invest time into something that will be meaningful, that will give them also the impression that they are actively participating to the, to the activity of the NGO, this is extremely powerful. You might have now 20 years old 3D artist. It will be also for him a chance to showcase what he is doing and so on. It's a win-win for you as an organization to make a product that might be super interesting and for the people to showcase their skills using you as a kind of a trampoline to maybe go and work for Ubisoft Activision. It must be a win-win. If it's only a one-way, it's not working. Once that relationship has been established between charity and developer, what's the best way to organize things financially so that the DLC provides the most benefit to the charity? It's really important that if you can, you grant the, the DLC ownership, and this is a technical thing, to the charity. So the charity becomes the publisher, and it's really important to do that for tax reasons. Because then if you give the charity the, the, the DLC, and that money's still flowing through you, and it goes through tax, and it goes through accounting, it's probably going to be eight months before the charity ever sees the money. And there's going to be things removed from it. There are loads of services and people want to be, uh, oh, look, we're doing this thing to help the charity with that flow. No, just give it to the charity. It's so simple and it doesn't need this extra layer of kind of complexity. So to summarise, if you want to use DLCs for good, build and nurture relationships between charities and game developers or amateur coding enthusiasts. And if you can, make the charity the publisher. Thanks, Shay. So there we have it, your downloadable content playbook to help you harness the power of DLCs for digital fundraising. 
If you found this podcast useful, do check out the other playbooks in this series on software bundles, esports, and in real life events. For more information about Gaming for Good and to hear inspiring stories from fundraising trailblazers, visit sfdc.co slash fundraising guide. Thanks to our guests, Christian Rufair, Joris Jan Vanatland, and James Schaal. This program was brought to you by salesforce.org. It was presented by Will Bond and me, Shay Thompson. It was a Sounds Fancy and Fieldwork production, written by Miranda Hinckley, with research, interviews, and additional writing by Curtis James. The music was by Neil Hale, and post-production by Curtis James. That's pretty much all we've got time for, but let's leave the last word to Joris Jan Vanathland. I know for a lot of my colleagues, this has been the most inspirational project we've ever done. It might have not have been the biggest, but just hearing the, the feedback from players, from eight workers in the field, like for me personally, my uncle works for the Doctors Without Boundaries, MSF. He didn't much like military games and shooters, but he was quite impressed by this perspective. So it's just been super rewarding on that level. And I would definitely recommend anyone to try it.